Welcome to Authentic. Hi, I am Dr. Greg Ammons, Senior Pastor of First Baptist Church of Garland. And welcome to the podcast, where we discuss various aspects of the Christian faith, relating theological truths from God's Word to practical topics of the Christian life, living daily for Jesus Christ in a real, genuine, and authentic way. Welcome to today's podcast. We continue on with answering questions that perhaps people have always wondered about. This is a follow-up to my sermon series, Asking for a Friend. Questions maybe we have always wondered about God or the Bible or some aspect of the Christian life that maybe we did not want to ask. And so in these podcasts, I am following up with different topics and five questions about those topics that maybe people have wondered about. And we've looked at the podcasts, five questions about heaven, five questions about salvation, and today we'll be answering five questions about spiritual beings, angels and demons and and, uh, things like that. So we're looking today primarily at spiritual beings. In future podcasts, we will be looking at lifestyle issues, transgenderism and euthanasia, things like that, other topics such as suffering or cremation or fasting and things like that, other uh, topics like that. So we'll be looking at some of those in future podcasts. So today, five questions about spiritual beings. Question number one, what is the difference between angels and humans? What is the difference between angelic beings and humanity? There's a lot of interest today in in angels. If you go to a bookstore, look around, you'll see a lot of angelology there, what some theologians call it. Just a fascination that our culture has with angels. And for some reason, they're wanting humanity and angels to be connected. But Scripture really does not make the connection between the two of humanity and angels and talks about really them being two separate beings. So let's talk a little bit about angels and what the Bible says about them. According to Scripture, angels are personal spiritual beings. They have intelligence and emotions and will. And this is true of both good angels and evil angels, or better known as as demons. In Scripture, angels possess intelligence. Uh, They show emotion. They exercise will, uh, will. They are are spiritual beings, and they really don't have true physical bodies. From time to time, they've taken on human bodies, Jacob wrestling with an angel and, and different um, uh, scenarios like that. But primarily, they are, are uh, spirit beings, according to Hebrews 1.14. And although they do not have physical bodies most of the time, they are still personalities. Now, because angels are created beings, their knowledge is limited. This means they do not know all things like God does. They're not omniscient. They do seem to have greater knowledge than humans, um, but but they're not omniscient like God. And primarily the word angel means messenger. Angelos in Greek means messenger or one sent on a mission. So, an angel primarily is a messenger or, or a being who is on a mission for God. Now, though they have wills, angels are, like all creatures, they are subject to the will of God. 
So good angels are sent by God to help believers. And in fact, listen to what the Bible describes or ascribes uh, angelic activity. Listen to this. They praise God in Isaiah 6, 3. They worship God, uh, Revelation 5, 8 to 13. They rejoice in what God does, Job 38, 6 and 7. They serve God, Psalm 103, 20. They appear before God, uh, Job 1, 6. They are instruments of God's judgments. In fact, you see that several times throughout Scripture. Revelation 7, 1 and 8, 2 both show angels to be instruments of God's judgment. Also, angels bring answers to prayer. Uh, they observe Christian work. They observe Christian suffering, according to 1 Peter 1.12. Uh, they encourage in times of danger, Acts 27, uh, 23 and 24. They care for the righteous at the time of death. We see that in the Luke 16.22 passage uh, where Jesus was talking about the rich man and Lazarus. So angels primarily are an entirely different order of being than are humans. Human beings do not become angels after they die. And I want to repeat that again because so many believers believe that. There is nothing in Scripture that says human beings become angels after they die. Angels will never become and never were human beings ever. God created the angels just as He created humanity. And so the Bible nowhere states that angels are created in the image of God. Nowhere does it say that they're created in the likeness of God. But humans are created in the image and likeness of God, according to Genesis 1.26. So angels are spiritual beings that can, to a certain degree and at times, as I said, take on physical form, but primarily they are spirit beings. Humans are primarily physical beings with a spiritual aspect. So there's a big difference between an angel and humanity. I think one of the great lessons we can learn from the holy angels is that they are instantly, unquestioningly uh, obedient to God, all of God's commands. And boy, I sure wish all of humanity was that way. wish I was that way. But that's, that's primarily something that humans can learn from angelic beings. Now, in heaven, there is a clear distinction between angels and redeemed humanity. Humanity who has been, been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And according to Scripture, humanity is lower than the angels. Redeemed humanity is higher than the angels. Angels never know the joy of being redeemed by Jesus Christ. And so it's really better to be a redeemed human than to be an angel. So, whenever I get to heaven, whatever you do, please do not demote me and reduce me whenever I die. I don't want to become an angel. I will be greater than the angels. In fact, Scripture says we will judge angels. I don't know how that works. A lot of questions there. Uh, but anyway, that's primarily the difference between angels and humans as uh, Scripture teaches it. In fact, I might do another podcast uh, on the passage where it does talk about uh, uh, judging angels. So question number one, what's the difference between angels and humans? Question number two concerning spiritual beings. Do we have a guardian angel? I've been asked that question many times through the years. 
Pastor, do I have a guardian angel? And I think one of the key passages uh, that people point to, believing that we do have guardian angels, is Matthew 18.10. Matthew 18.10 says, where Jesus said, See that you do not look down on one of those little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Let me say that again. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Now, in this context, these little ones could either apply to those who believe in Jesus or it could refer to little children. But this is the key passage primarily regarding guardian angels. There is no doubt that good angels help protect us reveal information, guide us, minister to believers in general. But I want us to return to the word there, T-H-E-I-R in Matthew 18.10. This is a collective pronoun in the Greek and refers to the fact that believers are served by angels in general. These angels are pictured as always watching the face of God so as to hear his command to them to help a believer when, it's, when, when it is needed. And the angels in this passage do not seem to be guarding a person as much as they are being attentive to the Father, if you notice that. So the active duty or oversight seems to, to be more from God than from the angels, which makes perfect sense because God alone is omniscient and Angels are not omniscient. They're not all-knowing. God sees every believer at every moment. God alone knows when one of us needs the intervention of an angel. And because they are continually watching His face, then the angels are at His disposal to help one of His little ones. Now the question uh, whether we see a lot is whether each person or each believer has an angel assigned to him or to her. Now, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel seemed to have had the archangel Michael assigned to Israel. Daniel 10.21, Daniel 12.1, both of those passages really seem to indicate that Michael, an archangel, was assigned as a guardian angel to a nation, to the nation of Israel. But Scripture nowhere states that an angel is assigned to me, to an individual. Uh, angels were sometimes sent to individuals, but there's no mention of that being a permanent assignment. Now, the Jews fully developed the belief in guardian angels during the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And some of the early church fathers throughout church history, they believed that every person had a good angel assigned to them. Early church fathers also believed that we had demons assigned to us. Uh, but again, there's no scriptural basis for that. So the belief in guardian angels has been around a long time. But really there is no explicit scriptural basis for a guardian angel. Cannot be emphatically answered from scripture yes or no. That every believer has a guardian angel assigned to him or to her. But there's really no scriptural basis that is factual. 
stated earlier, God does use angels in ministering to us. It's scriptural that He uses them as He uses us. Uh, that He in no way needs us to accomplish purposes, His purposes. Nor does He need angels. But He chooses to use them and chooses to use us. So in the end, whether or not we have an angel assigned to protect us, we have an even greater assurance from God because He is protecting us and He's watching over us. So if we have an omniscient, omnipotent, all-loving God watching over us 24-7, does it really matter whether we have a guardian angel or not? Personally, I don't see the need for a guardian angel. If you are saved, if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, God watches over you. Uh, Everything a guardian angel could do, God does. Why would you want a guardian angel to do what God has already promised He would do? So, I don't see the need for a guardian angel. God Almighty is doing everything for me already that a guardian angel would do for me. So, it's really not scriptural. It has been traditional belief among the Jews and among early church fathers that guardian angels are real, but there's nothing really scriptural that tells us that. Question number three about spiritual beings. How did angels choose to rebel against God in a perfect heaven and thus become demons? How did angels choose to rebel against God in a perfect heaven and become demons? That's a good question, and I've been asked that question many, many times as a pastor through the years. So so let me answer the question. While there's no verse that says a third of the angels fell from heaven, there are some verses when you put them together that do lead us to that conclusion. Let, Let me mention those to you. Evidently, sometime... After the creation of angels and beings, and most certainly after the sixth day of creation when God said everything was very good in Genesis 1.31, sometime after that, we don't know when, Scripture is not, doesn't really tell us, but it does tell us this. Sometime after the creation of beings and after the sixth day of creation, Satan rebelled and was cast out of heaven. We know that to be factual because Isaiah 14, 12 says, quote, How have you fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn? You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. End quote. Again, that is a reference to Satan rebelling against God and being cast out of heaven. Luke 10, 18, Jesus himself said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So Jesus describes the fact, him of course being eternal, he saw Satan in his rebellion and saw him fall from heaven. He describes it like lightning. And then in the book of Revelation chapter 9 verse 1, Satan is seen as, quote, a star who had fallen from the sky to the earth, end quote. So, if you put all of those passages together, if you put together Isaiah 14, 12, what Jesus said in Luke 10, 18, and and Revelation 9, 1, you put all of those together, then, then yes, we can conclude Satan rebelled against God in heaven, 
and one-third of the angels fell from heaven to earth and became the demons. Now, a couple other passages. Hebrews 12.22, we are told that one-third of an innumerable company of angels chose to rebel with the evil one. That's Hebrews 12.22. Second passage in Revelation 12.3-9, John saw this great wonder in heaven. And here's what he says, quote, An enormous red dragon, his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. That great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. End quote. That was Revelation 12, 3 through 9. So these passages definitely tell us what happened. Now, it doesn't give us any more details as to how it happened. It just tells us simply the fact that it did happen. Now, since Satan is referred to as a star which fell or was cast down to the earth in Revelation 12:4, and it says that a third of the stars were cast out with him, then the conclusion has to be that the stars in Revelation 12 refer to fallen angels. So, one-third of the heavenly host. So, if the number one-third is accurate, I don't see any reason why it shouldn't be, because it is scriptural. What assurance that is, two-thirds of the angels are still on God's side, the followers of Christ. And they're on our side as well. So, only one-third of the angels chose to follow Satan. Now, the question is, how did that happen in a perfect heaven? How did rebellion take place in a perfect heaven? Well, we don't know because it took place after day six of creation. It is not described anywhere else in Scripture other than the passages I gave you. So evidently what happened was at one point before humanity had fallen and all of that in Genesis 3, evidently before all of that, there was a time that the angels had a choice in heaven to follow God or rebel from God. Satan, Lucifer, chose to rebel against God and one-third of the angels chose to follow him. But there's nothing in Scripture that tells us going forward now or even into eternity that there will be such choices in heaven. In fact, we don't have to worry in heaven one day that another rebellion will take place. Nothing in Scripture from Genesis all the way through points to the fact that in heaven from now and on into eternity that there could possibly be a rebellion. Evidently it happened at one time before humanity fell. But there's no indication whatsoever that from now on that there will possibly be a rebellion in heaven. But it took place at one time uh, evidently before humanity sinned in the garden in Genesis 3. So, That's how angels chose to rebel in a perfect heaven and what we know about it from Scripture itself. Question number four. Is demon possession real today? Can a person be demon possessed today? It's a great question. Again, I've been asked that question many times about demon possession and and, uh, uh, can a Christian be demon possessed? We'll talk about that in just a moment as well. First of all, let's talk a little bit about demon possession in general and what Scripture says about it. What does it not say about it? 
The Bible gives some examples of, of people who were possessed or greatly influenced by demons or devils, the Bible says. Now, from these examples in Scripture, we can find some symptoms of demonic influence and get a little bit of insight as to how demon possession works today or how a demon possesses someone. Several passages, Matthew 9, 32 and 33, Matthew 12, 22, Matthew 17, 18, Mark 5, 1 through 20, Luke 4, 33 through 36, uh, even in the book of Acts, chapter 16, verses 16 through 18. In some of these passages, the demon possession causes physical ailments, such as the inability to speak or epileptic seizures or blindness. In other cases, the demon possession causes the individual to do evil. Uh, Judas is the best example that we know of that. In Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 18, very interesting passage, the Spirit apparently gives a slave girl some ability to know things beyond her own learning. So it appeared that the demon gave her some insight. Uh, the demon-possessed man of the, of the Gadarenes uh, in Luke, he was possessed by a multitude of demons, in fact called legion because there were many, many demons uh, controlled him. And, and this man had superhuman strength. He lived naked out among the tombstones. And so these demons gave him superpowers or superhuman strength. Now, back in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 16, 18 and 19, King Saul, after he rebelled against the Lord, he was troubled by an evil spirit. And this evil spirit apparently had the effect of making him depressed. So, so this demon caused depression in King Saul and even gave him an increased desire to kill somebody, to kill King David. So you can see the many effects that demons had upon people in, in Scripture. Now, there's a wide variety of possible symptoms of demon possession then that we see, uh, such as physical impairment that cannot be attributed to an actual physiological problem. Uh, you see a personality change such as aggression or depression. You see supernatural strength. You see immodesty, uh, going naked. You see antisocial behavior. You see perhaps the ability to share information that no one would have in a natural way. So these are some of the things that demons did to people in Scripture. So it's important to note that nearly, if not all, of these characteristics could have had other explanations, but they certainly pointed to demonic activity. Uh, on the other hand, Western culture probably does not take satanic involvement in the lives of people seriously enough. Uh, a lot of people today may try to attribute to other things really what evil or demonic influence is behind. Uh, and so I, I think sometimes Western culture really does not take demonic activity seriously enough. Now, in addition to these physical or emotional distinctions, you can look also at some spiritual attributes 
that show demonic influence. Uh, for example, uh, it, it was demonic in 2 Corinthians that they were not forgiving of others. Could it be demonic influence that keeps you from forgiving someone you should forgive? That, that's interesting to think about. Also, uh, demonic influence was behind the spread of false doctrine in the New Testament, especially concerning Jesus and His atoning work. You see that in 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4. Uh, 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. 1 John 4, verses 1 through 3. You see a demonic influence behind the spread of a, a false doctrine. Now, there's nothing in Scripture that ever indicated that demon possession ceased. A lot of people today do not believe in demon possession, say, oh, that's, that's archaic. But there's nothing in the Bible, it's, it was very evident in the Bible. Jesus talked an awful lot about demon possession. He cast out demons. The disciples cast out demons. Nothing in Scripture ever says demonic possession ceased. So why would we assume today that demon possession is no longer real? I believe that it is. I believe a, an unbeliever can be possessed by a demon. Now, further question, can a Christian be demon-possessed? And I know that question has come up a lot. I don't believe so. I do not think that a Christian can be demon-possessed. Now, let me talk about that a little further. Concerning the involvement of demons in the lives of a believer... I think the Apostle Peter is a great illustration of the fact that a believer can be influenced by the devil. He can be oppressed, but I don't think possessed. There's a difference. A believer today can be oppressed by or influenced by the devil. That happened in Matthew 16, 23. You might remember, you might remember Jesus looking at Peter and Peter said, Lord, you're not going to have to go to the cross and die. And Jesus turned and looked into the face of one of his best friends for three years, Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan. He didn't say get behind me, Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. You're not minding the things of God. So Jesus looked into the, into the face of one of his best friends and recognized the work of Satan influencing Peter. Some refer to Christians who are under a strong demonic influence as being demonized, but there's never an example in Scripture of a believer in Christ being possessed by a demon. In fact, most theologians, most Bible scholars believe that a Christian cannot be possessed because a believer has the Holy Spirit of God abiding within him. That, that's according to 2 Corinthians 1.22 and 1 Corinthians 6.19. If you're a believer in Christ... You have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. And the Spirit of God would not share residence with a demon. One of them would have to go. Well, the one who has to go is the one who lacks the greater power. And according to Scripture, the Holy Spirit living in you is greater than the power of Satan. Greater is he who lives in you than he that's of the world. And so, um, so obviously a, a demon could not reside where the Spirit of God resides. So I don't think that a believer in Christ can, uh, can be demon-possessed. Now, we're not exactly told how a person, how an unbeliever opens 
themselves up for possession? I mean, how does an unbeliever become possessed? We really don't know that. The Bible doesn't really say that. If Judas in the Bible is representative, then he opened his heart to evil. In his case, it was greed. John 12, 6 tells us that. But Judas became possessed by opening his heart to evil. So it may be possible that if someone allows their heart to be opened up to evil, then it's possible they could become possessed. That evil may be a habitual sin. Um, Maybe that's an invitation for a demon to enter. A lot of missionaries have told us from their experiences on the mission field, that demon possession is very real. They, they see, a, see it a lot on the mission field. And they say it, it seems to be related to the worship of heathen idols and the possession of occult materials. And that's what, that's what missionaries tell us. Scripture repeatedly tells us that idol worship it, to the, to the, it, it is actually the worship of demons. Uh, Leviticus 17.7, 7, Deuteronomy 32.17, Psalm 106.37, 1 Corinthians 10.20 uh, tell us that the worship of idols is really the worship of demons. So it should not be surprising that involvement with idolatry can lead to demon possessions. possession. Now, uh, based on the scriptural passage I, I just mentioned, and some of the experience of missionaries, I think you can conclude that a lot of people open up their lives to demonic involvement, maybe through embracing some sin, some habitual sin, or maybe through some cultic involvement, either knowingly or unknowingly. Examples may be uh, immorality or drug abuse, alcohol abuse, something that alters your state of consciousness, uh, maybe through bitterness, maybe, maybe through rebellion, um, maybe through some, some of those activities, you open yourself up, unbelievers open themselves up to demonic activity. Now, one other consideration before we leave this question, Satan and his evil host can do nothing that the Lord does not allow them to do. Let me say that again. Satan and demons cannot do anything to any person that the Lord does not allow them to do. In Job 1 and 2, those chapters are a great example of that. In fact, they had the devil had to ask permission to, to uh, afflict Job. Now, some people develop an, an unhealthy fascination with the occult and with demonic activity. I, I believe that's unwise. I believe it's unbiblical. I don't think they should, should, that should be a part of their lives. If we are to pursue God, if we're clothing ourselves with His armor, Ephesians 6, 10, uh, 10 through 18, we have nothing to fear from the evil one because God rules over us. So if demonic activity could be involved in the life of a Christian, that demon and, and Satan himself would have to be more powerful than God. However, I do believe that demon possession can be very real in the life of an unbeliever in, in our day and age. All right, last question. Question number five concerning spiritual beings. Can Satan read my mind and does he know what I'm thinking? Can Satan read my mind and does he know 
what I'm thinking? Well, first of all, I think it's important to remember that Satan himself is not omniscient. He is not all-knowing. The Bible tells us God is omniscient. Uh, Satan is not omniscient. Satan is not omnipresent. He cannot be in more than one place at one time. He can't be all the places around the world at one time. Uh, Only God is everywhere. Only God knows everything. So Satan, he must rely on an army of demons to do his bidding. He He can't be everywhere and he doesn't know everything. He's not omniscient. So, in answering the question, can Satan or his demons read my mind? I think the answer is no. Uh, 1 Kings 8.39 tells us God alone knows every human heart. Satan does not know every human heart. God alone does. There is no one else who has that ability. God knows what we're going to say before we say it. God knows every thought that is, while it's still being formulated, according to Psalm 139, uh, Jesus, being God incarnate, exhibited also the quality of knowing men's thoughts. Uh, John 2.25, Matthew 9.4, John 6.64, He knew what was in the heart of every person, we're told from Scripture. So Jesus, being God, knew what they were thinking. God knows what all of us are thinking. But there's no indication in Scripture that Satan himself knows what you're thinking. Now, the Bible does teach us that Satan is powerful. Likely he was the highest of all the fallen angels we talked about earlier in in this podcast. He was persuasive enough to convince one-third of the angels to join him in the rebellion. But even after Satan's fall, not even the archangel Michael dared to confront him without the Lord's help in Jude 1 9. Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's at work in those who are disobedient, according to Ephesians 2 2. So he's powerful. Satan is very powerful. He's powerful than you are on your own. Just you on your own strength, you in your own power, you're no match for him. However, the Spirit of God through Jesus Christ living in you, much greater than than Satan, much more powerful than the devil. Satan's power has its limits, but reading our minds seems to be beyond his ability, according to Scripture. It would take Satan to be omniscient. It would take demons to be omniscient to read our minds, uh, which they do not have. God is the only one who, who does that. Now, Let me say a couple of thoughts, though, before I close. First of all, Satan and his demons, although they cannot read our minds, they have been observing and tempting human beings for thousands of years, so they pretty well know how we operate. Surely they've learned a few things about humanity over the years. Even without the ability to know our thoughts, they can pretty well make an educated guess as to what we're thinking and then attempt to use that to their advantage. And that's why the Bible tells us to submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you, according to James 4, 7. The Bible never tells us to cast out the devil. That is never a command. 
Christians today are never commanded to cast out the devil. However, we are commanded to resist the devil in James 4, 7. So, Satan cannot read our minds, but he has been observing humanity and pretty well knows what we will fall for. Now, a second thought I'll have before I close is this. Satan does know our weaknesses. And he uses today the same pattern that he used in the Garden of Eden. Uh, There's no need to change. That bait worked then. The same bait works today. He talked to Eve and convinced her God has, is trying to hold out on you. His word is not accurate and he's trying to lie to you and, and all of this. And, and she bought it and then Adam, he, he believed the lies as well and it worked. So today, he, Satan uses many of the same tactics. If you read Genesis 3, 1 through 7 very carefully, you'll notice that the same tactics the enemy used then, he pretty well uses today. So, if the same tactics work, why change them? If you're out fishing and you're catching a ton of fish and you're using the same bait to do it, why change bait? It's working. And so, Satan is trying to get you to fall and if what he's been using for thousands of years has worked, why change it? And so, he really is using about the same approach in general today that he used back in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, 1 through 7. So that's why I think it's really imperative that you study that passage very carefully. In fact, at the end of July, uh, uh, end of June, 1st of July, here at First Baptist Church of Garland, I'm going to be preaching a two-week sermon series, June 30th and July 7th, two-week sermon series entitled, A Conversation with the Enemy. And I'm going to be dissecting Genesis 3, 1 through 7, it's very important to read those, that passage because you will then get a clue as to the approach the enemy is going to take when he starts to tempt you. So, cannot read our minds, but his tactics are pretty well effective and have been for thousands of years. Well, those are five questions concerning um, uh, spiritual beings. I hope they have been of help to you and We will continue with these podcasts. I will post one every week to 10 days or so on different questions about different topics. But hopefully you've enjoyed this and hope it's been beneficial to you. So we'll see you next time on our next podcast. You have been listening to Authentic with Dr. Greg Ammons. Join us next time for a new podcast whenever we discuss various aspects of the Christian life. Relating theological truths from God's Word practical ways to live for Jesus Christ on a daily basis in a real, genuine, and authentic way. Mm -hmm.